0: They're continuing to load in well here for this big Group 1 event. There's a bit of
1: movement from out wide. This will be confirmation from downstairs. Hello, broadcast. Okay. The clerks of the course have
0: been past fit to start, and Dean and Lewis are in the saddle. The red light goes on. The clerks of the course podcast is set to begin.
1: Ready. And they're off it out, Chautauqua very late, it's English a half length in front, can he do it? Chautauqua, he's flying, yes! Excellent, but Makani Diva clear with 100 metres
2: to go,
0: excellent runs to second, what is G'day punters and welcome back to the Clarks of the Course podcast brought to you each and every week by the Sporting Base. Head to thesportingbase.com for all your racing news and tips as well as finding all the episodes and interviews we do on the pod. Now we welcome uh, to the pod this afternoon one of the smartest minds in racing and form analysis. Uh, Having been a professional punter now for over 25 years, he's the man behind the BetSmart racing service hosted by the professional form analysis company, the Rating Bureau. Uh, His analysis is very data-driven, focusing heavily on weight-for-age ratings that are achieved by each individual horse in order to find every winner. He recently helped my runners select their Everest horse, and his knowledge on form and the racing industry in general is second to none, and is greatly appreciated by punters such as Dean and myself. A big welcome to the Clarks of the Course podcast, to Daniel O'Sullivan. How are you, Daniel? Hey guys. Really well, thanks. That's beautiful. Now, mate, uh, what we do normally with all the interviewees, we get on before we get into the crux of it. We like to get a bit of their background uh, and how they got into racing in general. So, just tell us quickly uh, before you became, you know, a punter and a professional punter. How did you really get in uh, the industry? Firstly, as a fan.
1: Look, I just started, It just started as a hobby for me. Well, I was in my previous career. Uh, we had a, a race day. The people at work, we went to the races and that was really um, my first experience, certainly at the track and I just loved that day and and the way things went and immediately took an interest and pretty much after that, just set out um, starting to research and learn as much as I could about racing and punting.
2: Welcome again to the pod, Dan. It's Dean here, mate. Um, How did you transition from a normal punter to that preference? Professional punting role. I think that's a question that a lot of people, including Lewis and myself, would love to know.
1: Yeah, look, it was a long process. I mean, like most people, you start out, you don't really have any idea what you're doing. Um, You're just doing your best. And and I've always been someone that's taken a strong uh, interest in learning. Um, So I spent many, many years sort of learning, going to the track every Saturday. Um, I stumbled across some books by Don Scott, which many, many, uh, successful punters today started in the same way. Um, his approach to ratings and, and analysing stuff really uh, gelled with me because that was uh, part of my makeup was was sort of a bent towards maps and numbers and analysis. Um, and, yeah, look, it was probably a gradual process where I started out, um, didn't really know what I was doing, just continued to learn, refine my game, learnt more about the money side of the game, decision-making. Um And then got to a point as your success and your confidence builds, you, you start to build money, your bet sizes get bigger, um, you you grow sort of more confidence. And then, yeah, one thing led to another. Um, in the sort of early 2000s, I was already betting quite large um, and uh, still had an existing career. And then it was just a good time of my life to um, take a chance and, and do something different. And, yeah, sort of went off doing that. And, and that sort of then blended into also... Um, Joining in the business with TRB.
2: Now, what was your early career like as a punter? Was it a seamless transition into the career, or did it have the big ups and big downs?
1: Look, as I said, I mean, I'd already been betting for uh, you know close to ten years prior to that as as a hobby. So I had plenty of ups and downs along the way doing that, Um, and and that's all vital experience, in in my opinion. Um, You need to go through those periods, Um, the game's about firstly doing the form and finding bets, but it's also probably 60% more about how you manage your money, how you manage yourself and and deal with the ebbs and flows of the game. So, look, I already had built up uh, quite a good experience prior to that. So, I would say it it was a fairly seamless transition, Um, although, you know, as you always have, you're still subject to, you know, having losing runs and things like that, And, and I definitely i had my share of those
0: and still to be honest uh now everyone kind of has a different approach to form you know some people are uh very heavily focused on trial watching i know there's a few smart people out there that do that i feel like your form approach has always been very data driven if you what's your kind of background into that and did you always have a keen interest in in data and, and figures in in relation to horses
1: Yeah, well, generally that's the way I started. I learned via the Don Scott uh, methods, uh, which for people that don't know, was basically about assigning a rating to every horse's run and using those numerical ratings as a measure of the strength of their form and and then doing the form uh, using that along with other factors. So I've really just refined my own approach along that basis over the years um, with many, many evolutions uh, moving heavily into speed and sectional figures um, long before they were as fashionable as they are now. Uh, and then also blending in, I consider myself to sort of sit somewhere in between between a, a pure data punter and, and a pure punter that you know, just goes by their, their eye and, and intuitive judgment. Uh, I definitely like to focus on data, ratings and, and the science side of things, um, but I'm also a huge believer in your own uh, intuitive or subjective judgment and, and all those other factors that perhaps data can't reflect. Um, and, and working those into the mix as well. So yeah, I really focus on probably a blend of those two things um, rather than being uh, distinctly one or
0: the other. You started at the Racing Bureau in 2004. Uh, tell us a bit about those beginnings and what the Racing Bureau is and what you aim to achieve there.
1: Yeah, look, TRB is like a racing data and services company. It, it's existed since the 60s. Uh, one of my business partners has since passed his father... Uh, Rem Plant started the business. Uh, He was a very, very well-known and successful Australian punter and and author back in the day. Uh, He started a business providing information to punters, uh, ratings even way back then. Um, They used to be uh, typed out on on paper and mailed out to a massive number of clients every Monday. And then the business evolved into computers and software and and various services at both the individual punter and the commercial level. Uh, and, yeah, I was a client of that business for, for quite a long time and got to know the guys and, and became uh, friends with them. And, yeah, one discussion led to another.
2: Perfect, perfect. Uh, you're a ratings-based punter. That's your approach to form like you said before. How has using ratings helped you find that edge in your betting?
1: Look, I think the biggest thing with ratings is that it helps you to – Assign a value to each run for, for every horse. Um, if you don't have that, in my opinion, then you're just left with subjective judgments, like it was a good run or a great run or a bad run. Uh, it gets very hard to line up. So by using ratings, it allows you to line up all of the different form lines, um, balancing out the strength of each race, you know, the, the various weights that were carried, the margins beaten, and things like that. Um, there are of course some subjective factors that aren't facts that aren't worked into ratings. A horse might have been unlucky or not suited by the pace or the track bias or something like that. But they're all factors you overlay on top with your form analysis. Those base ratings are really about providing a number that allows you to line up the form with a bit of clarity and and also some confidence. Uh, And it also makes it much more efficient than trying to look at you know, recent runs for horses and then try and remember back to that race and who won it and who's come out of it and how strong it was and all that type of stuff. I mean, ratings to answer all of those questions. So um, for, for me, they allow me to do the form with a lot more clarity than, than I otherwise could and certainly in a much more efficient way so you can spend uh, more time on, on extra sort of value-added activities rather than just the
0: basics of, of understanding that the strength of each past race. Yeah, beautiful. Now, this is a question that uh, we got a lot when we posted on our Twitter page for questions for yourself, and it's definitely something that Dean and I would like to know as well. Explain to us uh, just how about you go doing the form from a race for start, from start to finish. Uh, how do you identify what races to bet in firstly, and then how does the process work?
1: Yeah, the first thing I always start with is just looking at the, the track and the setup of the track on that day and how we might uh, expect it to play. Um, by looking at past meetings uh, from uh, my database and and other records I've got about how the tracks played on that day. Um, Within an individual race, I'm always starting with with a speed map, um, looking at the different challenge that various horses face, what their normal pattern is, um, where they might settle, which jockeys face difficult tactical choices, uh, which horses look like they're going to find their position without doing any work at all, And, and then, of course, what the overall speed and pressure in the race might be like. Um, after that, I'm then starting to look at my ratings and, and I have a process where I work through each race and I'm looking at both the recent and best form of the horses in the race and try to understand that the type of standard that might be needed to win the race in a rating sense. Um, obviously different, the higher the class, the higher the rating. Um, but but again within each race they're, they're all individuals so I'm looking to, to try and establish what's the minimum figure that a horse will need to run for, to have some chance in the finish of this race and, and that really then forms the foundation of everything I'm doing after that once I've got that figure I'm then going through and assessing each horse and, and their potential to run to that standard or better um, taking into account all the factors their recent form, their best form um, how the map stacks up um where they are in their preparation, where they are in their career horses that, you know, still have the potential to improve. Uh different things like jockey changes, just the whole raft of, of normal form factors that many, many people know about. Um, but that's essentially my process within a race, looking at the map, looking at the standard of race and, and then assessing each horse on, on their potential to, to meet that standard. Uh, once I've got that, then I'm really looking at my main chances and looking to refine those down and and then uh considering the market and then just looking to to make bets that make sense to me, to be honest. There's no great science or, or formulas behind it. It's, it's literally looking at a race, looking at the horses and, and finding those horses to back that, that make most
0: sense. Yeah, beautiful. Now, uh, how have you kind of adapted your approach to form over the years of uh, being a professional punter? Obviously, what you started off doing back in 2004 and earlier uh, has been adapted over the years up until today. What are kind of things that you've had to change and, and, and adapt uh, throughout the years?
1: Oh, there's been so many things. And to be honest, that's, in my experience, one of the keys to, to longevity in this game. Uh, markets still evolve and adapt. Um, people, you know, other smart people are out there looking for edges and angles and methods to assess races. And they might you know, hone in on, on areas that are your edge uh, and you eventually see those edges disappear. So you do always need to be evolving. Um, I've been fortunate over the years that it's one part of the game that I really enjoy and that's always thinking about and and looking for new ways to look at form, new data that can help, um, new angles to assess and and new factors you can learn about and and understand what role they play. So, look, I've had sort of many evolutions both in terms of the ratings and data that I use, the types of horses that I look for um, and then... You know, certain processes after the race in terms of reviewing meetings and and different factors that I pay attention to. So, um, I'd say that the first big evolution has just been in, in gradually evolving that the style of ratings and numbers that I use to assess form has been different methods and techniques that have, um, that I've sort of developed or, or had ideas about that have, that have come into permanent use. Um, you know, another area from, at least from the very early days was just about understanding the individual horse more, um, understanding the different traits, um, the different traits that horses can exhibit early in their career that that help to predict sort of future talent and success. Um, And then, you know, one other factor is just the ongoing challenge that we all face is being able to deal with the natural ups and downs of the game and, and evolving your own personal psychology so that you... Um, can appreciate and understand how difficult it can be at times but still be able to maintain your composure uh, and discipline and, and, and implement your game going forward because it doesn't matter how good a judge you are or uh, what sort of good run you have, everyone eventually strikes losing runs and if you can't handle yourself uh, in those periods then you're never going to uh, survive or at least succeed as a punter.
2: Make Very good points there, Dan. Um, I think this is one of the topics that's uh, a pivotal point in becoming a successful punter. That topic is staking. How would you suggest to punters out there to stake their bets correctly? I know there's plenty of ways out there, but could you just give our punters a couple of ways you would suggest to do that?
1: Yeah, look, The first thing I'd say, and I couldn't uh, stress this advice uh, strongly enough, and, and that's to Stay away from anything you read or hear about so-called staking plans where you change your bets, your next bet, based on the result of the, the bet previous. They don't work. Um, they're dangerous. They'll eventually send you broke or, or push you into losing runs that destroy your confidence. And, and there's not one successful punter I know that follows anything like that. So that's probably the, the, the first and most important um, point I could make. Um, the other point is the simplest approach is just bet to collect a certain amount of money. So if you've got a punting bank, uh, work out a target, somewhere around 5% of your bank, uh, and you bet to collect that amount on each bet just based on the price you get for each horse or the price you expect to get. So if you've got a bank of a $1,000, you're betting to collect $50. So if the horse is $5 in the market, you'd have $10 on it. Uh, if the horse is even money, you'd have $25 on it. Um, it's, it's that type of approach which is the basis of how most professionals bet. Um, everyone has their own little variations of that based perhaps on their assessed price, how big they think their edge is, which moves into methods like the Kelly criterion and so forth. But for the average punter, a really good and effective way, as I said, is just to bet to collect a constant amount based on the price you get. Um, so you've got more on your shorter price horses and, and a little bit less on your longer price horses, um, which helps to smooth out your, your variance during losing runs in terms of the money that you're losing. Um, and will serve you well. I mean, it's served me well for forever and a day now Um, and I continue to follow that type of approach sort of based around my own assessments and and how big of an edge I think I've got.
2: Perfect, perfect. Um, How can the average person or punter begin to rate runners and create their own markets in order to punt off, Dan?
1: Look, it doesn't need to be complicated, to be honest. I mean... You're really just talking about how you do the form and, and decide your bets. Um, if you're not using your own know, existing you know set of tools and, and software that directly helps you to do that, then my advice is really to start with a process of trying to rank the field, like looking at the, the runners. Um, perhaps you can separate out a group of horses that you think have virtually no chance, the long shots. Um, focus on the, the main contenders and just look to rank them uh, against each other initially. Sort of look at. Key factors like the strength of their form, um, the map, how well suited they are by by the race, uh, potential to improve. Um, you could set up, you know, a number of key things that you want to look at, and just rank the horses on that basis, and then start to get an idea of of who you think the best winning chance is, um, who you think the next best chance is, and so on. Uh, and then if you want to go further from there, you can you know do things like assign points to those horses, and and then tally them up and work out percentages and things like that, but. To be honest, you don't need to get that numerical if you're just doing the form. It's, it's really just about understanding the race, um, understanding how the chances line up against each other, having a good feel for that. And, and then when you're looking at setting markets, just find horses at the back that make sense to you, horses that feel like um, they're a good bet based on how you've done the race. It doesn't need to be complicated and doesn't need to be overly scientific, to be honest.
0: Yeah, beautiful. I think it's, um. I remember I listened to, an interview you did back with Gator on RSN, at, uh, oh, it would have been maybe earlier this year. And that's when I really started to change my approach to form analysis as well. I think um, it's it can, it's something that maybe scares off a few people to begin with because it all seems uh, tricky. But as you said, it isn't that complicated. And it really, I think, um, can start to enhance uh, your ability at form analysis and the winners you start to pick as well. Yeah, most,
1: most definitely. You, you don't... You know, sophisticated doesn't necessarily mean more effective. Um, at the end of the day, you're trying to find horses that are a better chance um, of winning than what the market suggests. And and um, but the great thing about racing is there's so many different angles to do that. You can ignore um, one or more factors that other people consider important and, and still find enough horses to back with an edge that, that you can make a profit. So you don't need to to be in all the data-driven stuff if that's not your go. You don't need to be into watching replays if you don't enjoy doing that. You've just got to find angles and an approach that you enjoy um, and can effectively work at. And, yeah, just have a, a simple method for lining the horses up and, and working out the, the chances and getting a good feel for the race. And, and then if you do that, you'll find that, you know, it'll become pretty clear the bets that, that makes sense to you. And if you stick to those, then, then generally most people will go very close to winning, if not, um,
0: yeah, you know, enjoy quite a bit of success. Yeah, that's it. Now, I've never met a punter uh, that doesn't have a, a real memorable story uh, during their career. Maybe it was out of the track one day or, or at home with a bunch of mates. It, it depends. But is there one real punting memory that stands out for you, Dan, in your career that was maybe uh, a big highlight? Um, look, I, I,
1: probably I... There was, uh, going back a while now, I owned a met air causeway queen. I was a part of owner of that inn and she was a, she was a pretty good mare. Um, one day she had a first up run and, and went terrible, got beat about 15 lengths, but we knew there were excuses and we're really sort of keen on her next start. She was about $15. So we backed her strongly to win that day and priced her really short in the quaddy, priced her like a $4 chance in the quaddy. Um, uh, and then so he had, yeah, like a number of combinations going into into the quaddy which which ended up paying really well as well. So it was a massive fill up and, and a horse that we really loved and was sort of close to as part of the ownership. So that's probably uh, a great memory that stands out. Um, there's plenty of others, of course, um, big wins and and uh, also some shocking memories of big losses. I can tell you. So um, that's all that's all part of the game.
2: Perfect, perfect. Uh, how much weight do you give to the form of jockeys and trainers as well as uh, the form of a horse? Do you stay on top of those, uh, those type of trends uh, in the market?
1: Yeah, I definitely stay on top of them. I tend to, um, with trainers, I'm looking more for really short-term trends of, of trainers that might be running into a bit of form where their horses are starting to run a little bit better than expectation. Um, even if they're not winning, sometimes it can be long-priced horses that are finishing close up or facing tough trips and, and still battling on at the end. Um, so I do, you know, factor that in a little bit when I'm looking at my ratings and trying to forecast the race. Uh, with jockeys, I'm really looking more, um, not so much at a jockey's reputation, but more about how they're valued in the market um, and. Uh, some jockeys might be talented, but they're consistently overvalued, so it's really hard to, to find value on those horses because of the influence the jockey might have on the price. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of underrated riders that can get the job done just as well as the as the top jockeys, but they don't have the, the reputation. So yeah, I'm generally staying across all of those trends. Uh, with with jockeys, the, the influence I put on that depends on the complexity of the ride. So a horse that might jump straight to the front a relatively simple rider, I'm not too worried about the jockey, uh, a horse that might be drawn tricky and, and probably has to, you know, do a bit of work to find a position, um, and there may be some issues there with timing, pace judgment and things like that. I'm, I'm much more uh, focused on the jockey, or, or make much more allowance for that type of factor, and, and if I think the jockey's perhaps a little bit below par, then that's probably enough to skimming away
0: from a bet. That's it. They call it the Marrera effect or the pikey effect sometimes, depending on where they're riding. It can uh, really shorten up the price of their runners when they're on board. Now, you mentioned just earlier um, the inevitability of losing runs on the punt. I think we've all had them uh, and we're all going to have them again as much as we have a winning run. Are there any uh, kind of things of advice you have out there for punters when they're going through a, a hard run on the punt?
1: You know, you, you may not be doing anything wrong. Um, you know, it's very easy, especially this day and age with social media and things to think that everyone's flying and everyone's winning. Um, but the reality is that's not the case. Um, everyone goes through horror runs and, and anyone that doesn't either doesn't bet um, or is flat out lying to you. Um, so the first thing to recognise is that you're not alone. Um, the, the second thing to understand is that it's completely normal. Um, and, and from there, it's really about... Just trying to manage yourself through it. So even if you reduce your bets a little bit, um, if you really start to, you know, hone in on your form process and make sure that you're really concentrating on your prime betting opportunities, um, and, and perhaps trying to stay away from the marginal ones that you might regret later. Um, and, and other little things, you know, when I've been going through really bad runs, I, I've, you know, spent time looking back at my past records over the years that, that I have in my betting to see where I've been through. Similar losing runs before, and, and if you keep good records and you do that, you'll see that. Yeah, you know, I have had horror runs before, but look at it in, in three weeks after that, I got half of it back, and within six weeks, I, I sort of pushed my bank to a GP. And that just gives you a bit of confidence that even though you might be in the doldrums and, and wondering where your next winner is going to come from, um, the things can turn, and, and when they do, they often turn quickly. Um, there's nothing like being able to look back at, at when you've been in that situation in the past and then seeing how you climbed out of the hole and, and you know, exceeded that to new peaks. But to give you a bit of confidence, just to stick at what you're doing, you know, keep your bets at, at a respectable level. Don't go chasing your losses. Just be prepared to ride it out. And, and the more times you do that, the, the more capability you build up um, at managing those runs. And, and to be honest, that's the, the number one challenge that, that, that we all face as punters, um, as as the hurdle to long-term success, is being able to get through those runs. So, um, that'll be my advice. Just just uh recognise that you're not alone. Um, you know, just be prepared to be patient and, and stick to your game plan until you come out of it and, and you know, if you're keeping records, which I'd hope everyone is, if they're serious about the game then and just look back and see where you've been through it before and take some confidence from the fact
2: that, that you can come out of it. Perfect, perfect. There's some very valuable points there. Um, Getting back to the puzzle, which is form analysis, uh, do you put more time into other aspects uh, these days? Uh,
1: Other aspects of doing the form, you mean?
2: Yeah, correct. So other aspects uh, regards to when you do the form. So do you put more time into certain aspects um, of your analysis compared to others?
1: Oh, look, I mean – The map is a big thing for me, so I always spend a bit of time on on that. Um, Generally, the the ratings and and that sort of next-level analysis isn't time-consuming. But where I tend to put a bit more time and effort these days is then um, of the the key horses in the race, then really drilling down onto those horses more, uh, watching a couple of replays, um, looking for little signs in in their profile and, and the way they've run their races, the different shapes and things like that, trying to find that. Extra little bit of information that, that might help shift my assessment, sort of one way or the other. And, and there's a few little things that I like to look for. So um, that's just part of the evolution of sort of doing the form um, when you've got time. Um, on other days, where I'm not doing every runner every, in every race. I'm, I'm really just looking for horses that, that fit a certain profile
0: that, that I know is successful and, and looking to find those horses to back. Now, I read something very interesting when I was doing a bit of research uh, leading up into the interview that uh, you're very heavily only a win-only type of better. I know that uh, a lot of punters like myself and Deakins get sucked into a few quaddies or some wide trifectas and that kind of stuff. Tell us why uh, you don't usually engage in the other kind of exotic bet types.
1: Look, it's just a mathematical thing, to be honest. I mean, the, the, the quaddie, I think quaddies are quite a good bet type. Um, you're betting across four races with, with a constant takeout of about 20% or a bit more than that. The only... Sort of looking at five percent uh, a race, which is which is still quite effective. Um, the thing with quaddies, though, is uh, to be honest, to you know really approach them well. You need to be staking each individual individual combination, um, so you don't have the same amount on a combination that's five thousand to one as a combination that's a hundred to one. Um, but in generally, like the wind market is the easiest market to profit from. Um, it's the lowest percentage. Um, if you if your analysis car um help you to profit in the wind market, then you're not going to profit um, in any of the other markets. Um, the, the edge you have to overcome in, in the pools is is greater, and uh, it's almost certain, especially when it comes to exotics, that your strike rate is going to be lower, which means your uh, losing runs are going to be significantly larger when they do come. Um, so with, with all of those types of exotic bets and things like that, unless you get extremely lucky early on, um eventually they're going to, to grind you into the ground. So I developed a philosophy really early on not to make the game any more complicated than it needs to be. Um, the aim is to win money. Um, so I like to try and keep it as, as simple as I can in doing that. And, and uh, for me and, and mathematically, the, the, the simplest uh, approach and, and the approach that gives you the best chance is playing in the win markets.
0: Yeah, look, I was never a good... Uh... Chance at learning many trifectas anyway. So it's good to know that I'm just going to stick to win-only type of betting now. Like We, we do this uh, with all our guests on the show, Dan. We like to fire a few quick questions at you uh, and just get a one-line or a one-word answer straight off the top of your head, um, yep. and we'll fire a few at you now. Your ideal punting location on a Saturday? Uh,
1: my office, which is a little separate building on my property at home.
2: Favourite track to bet at?
1: Uh, Caulfield and Rose Hill.
0: Favourite jockey you're following at the moment?
1: Um, not so much at the moment, but just generally Nashra Willer.
0: And your favourite trainer generally? Uh,
1: that's, a, that's a tough one. I, I'd probably say that I don't have a, a favourite trainer to, to
2: follow. I think they all you know come and go in terms of form. How do you celebrate a winning day? Uh, normally, just a, normally just a few drinks at home, I'm sort of punting from home, uh, got a terrific family so normally just, yeah, chill with a, with a few drinks and, and a good pizza or some other sort of meal like that. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, what do you do after a losing day?
1: Uh, the first thing I do is normally just try and distract myself from racing, normally I try and do something else to, to forget about the day, um, have a few drinks again. Um, you know, watch a movie or get engrossed in some sort of TV show or something like that that's really just going to distract me from thinking about racing and and then uh, worry about it the next day or ideally, um, depending if it's a Saturday, I try and switch off from it on Sunday as well and, and start worrying about it again on Monday. It's
0: a very good point you make there. I think it's important uh, to have a few other sports and hobbies that you follow, which leads me on to this question. Uh, what are the other main sports or hobbies that you do outside of racing?
1: Uh, look, I take a... a Strong interest in the NBA, not so much from a betting perspective, but as a fan perspective, um, and rugby league, of, of course, being uh, Sydney-based, uh, and things like boxing and MMA, UFC, and stuff like that oh, I've been into for probably uh, 15, 15, 20 years from the very early days, so I'm always following those with interests.
2: Uh, another big topic on the podcast for me and Lewis is our beverage of choice for each podcast. Um what is your winning beverage of choice after a good day's of racing? Uh, it'd be either
1: a bottle of good red wine or vodka
0: lime and soda. Yeah, beautiful. A few VLSs at the end of the races don't uh, don't go astray at all. That's beautiful, mate. Thanks for those quick fire questions. Now, before we let you go quickly, because we know you do have to go, uh, we just want to get a bit of a, a wrap up, not only of uh, some quick things from last weekend's racing, but there's some big, uh, huge racing, may I say, down in Melbourne this Saturday. Firstly, what did you make of uh, Very Elegant's win in the Caulfield Cup last Saturday?
1: Oh, look, I thought it was terrific. Uh, probably the bit I was most impressed about was, you know, through the line, she was even further in front of her opposition. So, um, she faces an enormous challenge in the Melbourne Cup with that weight. Uh, history shows how difficult it is. But, yeah, it's just left me wondering, just seeing how strong she was past the post in the Caulfield Cup. Whether this may some type of superstar or something, and and maybe we haven't even seen the best of her, and we, we might get
0: to see that at thirty two hundred. Well, that's it. Before we get to the Melbourne Cup, did you have any early thoughts uh, on this Tuesday about the Cox Plate coming up this Saturday?
1: Uh, Look, I think it's a very even race with the three internationals and and Russian Camelot Arcadia Queen. Um, I'll probably be on the side of Arcadia Queen. I thought her last run was terrific and a sign that she's uh, back to her best form. Uh, She's extremely strong late in a race that wasn't run uh, ideally to suit. So with with the proven local form, she'll probably be the one I side with, but it's a, a very open race with quite a few potential winners.
0: And the Melbourne Cup, do you reckon you'll stay with the uh, locals as they were, or is there any internationals that are catching your eye?
1: Uh, it's probably a little bit too, too early to tell. Um, I've got a, a pretty specific approach. I like to fight the Melbourne Cup in terms of, you know, ratings and where horses are at in their lead up runs. So um, and I haven't really assessed all of the internationals fully yet, so I'll probably have to wait till I do that. Um, but like most years, it's stacking up as a, as a really interesting race.
2: Perfect, perfect. Last question for you. Any thoughts on who can win the golden eagle in Sydney this weekend? Um look,
1: I um, haven't
2: looked closely at the closely at the noms. Are uh, you going there? Yeah. Um, could be, could be for sure, I think. Sorry, it's in two weekends time too, not this weekend either. I didn't
1: think it was this weekend, yeah. Look, I mean, he's probably the, the obvious horse out of what he did in the Everest last week. That was a, a world-class um, race with the performance from the winner. Um, he was second and, and right up near his better figures. He was a strong winner of of a, a really uh, strong addition of the Golden Rose when he was a three-year-old um, last year. So, look, at, at this early stage, he's probably the horse I'd be sort of looking to find. Yeah,
0: beautiful. Righto, well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, the pod and giving us your unbelievable insight into the puzzle that is form uh, and also your clear, uh, great interest in racing. I'm sure it's of uh, good knowledge to not only Dean and myself, but all the listeners out there, uh, everything you've said today. So we can't thank you enough for coming on, mate. Cheers, guys. No
1: problem at all. Enjoy the spring.